Hey guys, Texas Slim here. It is uh, someday before Friday. Uh, I'm in Lockhart, Texas, and I'm in my truck, and I'm actually in front of Terry Black's Barbecue. It's two nights, Cooper's Barbecue and Terry Black's in uh, Lano, Texas and Lockhart, Texas. I've been on the road, uh, gosh, I can't even remember, Monday? Monday, and I'll be back in the Panhandle probably next Wednesday. Then I fly to Idaho, so there's tons going on. I'm flying to Charlotte from Austin Friday morning. Uh, we're going to go to the Halloween. Uh, Liz and Jake, they put up that there in Charlotte, so that's going to be fun. But anyways, it's been busy, busy. Been on ranches, went and saw Ann and Weldon Warren and outside of Lubbock, holy cow, you guys go check them out, man. That's something else. We're going to have an article about them coming up. I believe in a couple of weeks. So um, pay attention to that. Um, want to remind you guys, all this is about saving lives, man. It's about saving children's lives. It's about saving your life. It's about true food intelligence. And we're trying to get 100,000 subscribers to this Texas Slim Substack that you have access to. Um, you know, we always put it down there in the show notes. And so go sign up. If you haven't subscribed, please share. Uh, this is important stuff. We've been going at this for over a year now. I've been going at it for over three. These days, these weeks, they're all the same. I always wake up in a different bed, a different part of the country. Um, one place I have not made it is Wisconsin. And we have Peter Allen today of Mastodon Farms. It's an amazing story that he has. If you haven't read a story um, that Bit Dern wrote, uh, was about Peter Allen and his family in Mastodon Valley Farms. So go check it out. Uh, Peter, uh, he's down there in the southwest corner of Wisconsin, a place called the Driftless. It's one of the oldest river valleys in the world, actually. And it was formed by these two glaciers that came down. And they created this valley and they never touched the soil. And whenever Peter found that soil about 10 years ago, he never left. So he's part of the Beef Initiative now. We're getting him. He's going to be selling some Beef Boxes uh, subscription model. So you guys enjoy that song that I'm playing for you today. It's uh, She's Like Texas. No shit, man. I've been all over Texas. <laughs> and there's a lot of them that she's like. So uh, love you guys. Uh, enjoy the episode. I'll be back afterwards to talk about a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'll come up with a story. But I'll, uh, I'll be seeing y'all. I'm going to go get some barbecue. Y'all be good. Talk to you soon. Hey, guys. Texas Slim here. We are on another day in October. And I have some very good guests. And this is what the Beef Initiative is really about. Uh, it's about making connections and building relationships. Uh, I have Aiden, which he goes by BitDurn on, uh, of course, uh, Bitcoin Twitter. We call it Bitcoin Twitter. And he actually wrote a three-part series about uh, himself and about meeting a farmer animal producer in a place called the Driftless. It's here in the United States, and uh, a lot of people don't know about it, and that certain person is Peter Allen of Mastodon Valley Farms. Hey, guys, how are you doing today? Doing great. Really good. 
Thanks for having me. Good to have you guys. Uh, this is this is an interesting uh, matchup, and it it's really has a fascinating story. And I kind of want to start from the beginning of how kind of materialized of us getting on this podcast because there's a roadmap here. Some relationships have been established. Uh, Aiden, you reached out to me, and you're you're in the Chicago area, so I'm not going to tell too much of your story. I want you to kind of tell me your journey into you know reaching out to me and what your your intentionality was, and then how that led to Peter. How's that? Yeah, uh, that's perfect. So um, I think I first heard about the Beef Initiative and uh, heard your guys' message from from Texas Slim specifically on. Uh, one of the first appearances on TFTC um, with Marty Bent, and I was immediately kind of uh, fascinated by the the potential to support farmers and ranchers with a monetary instrument that is uniquely um, unconfiscatable and kind of unmesswithable, we could say, uh, and. From there, I, I was really just interested in how I could support that initiative and how I could kind of, um, you know, do the work of spreading the message. Uh, and I started by going out to to farmers markets and just shaking uh, ranchers, farmers' hands, and asking them if they started, you know, if they had started to accept Bitcoin. Uh, I've since refined the message at the um, at the at the uh, you know kind of discretion of Texas Slim, uh, you know. We, we, we want to focus more so on being educated first and then educating following that. Um, and then that's just a little bit of backstory about how I got involved with the Beef, Beef Initiative. But <clears throat> I discovered uh, Peter on a separate podcast called the Doomer Optimism Podcast, uh, one of his first appearances on there. And uh, Peter, I, I'm not going to tell his story for him, but he's got some ideas that about uh, – specifically about humans as a keystone species. And I hope we get to talk about that today. But one thing that really kind of drew me to him and the Mastodon Valley Farm as an enterprise and just as an idea was the, was, was the kind of understanding that uh, as humans, we are, we're responsible for the choices we make, specifically around food and specifically around where we source our food. Because Every purchase that we make, every decision that we make in that regard as to where we source food has a direct impact on the environment where that food comes from. So if we're talking about monocropping, right, for, as an example, if you're buying products that are, you know, have a major input of, let's say, corn or soy or other sorts of grains, what you're doing is you're, you're you know, indirectly supporting uh, the the continuation of those industries. Um, and that's just one example. And I, I think I'll leave it there and then I'll let Peter do a better job explaining his ideas. But <laughs> no, that's that a good job, Aiden. No, I like to call it validating the damn deception. Quit validating the right. deception in your consumption models. We all have our that's ways right. of explaining it, right? Peter, how about you? Tell us a little bit about you, where you come from, what's your journey into Mastodon and the Driftless. A lot of people in the United States, people even living in the Driftless, don't even know they're there. It's a fascinating place. And whenever I first met you, that was one thing I went directly to. And Aiden had provided some good links to it as well. Yeah, so we're in southwestern Wisconsin. It's a little corner of Wisconsin, uh, pretty close to the Mississippi River. That, and None of the past glaciations 
impacted. So the glaciers went around this area. Uh, and so we still have hills and valleys. It's, um, it's got a lot of elevation change. It's a very beautiful, it's an ancient landscape. I'm, up, I'm right on the Kickapoo Valley, uh, Kickapoo River, which is, there's some debate with geologists, but it's one of the oldest rivers in the world, uh, if not the oldest river in the world. So a really ancient landscape, uh, really beautiful place. We, we love it, uh, fell in love with it. Um, my story, starting a farm, I didn't grow up on a farm. I had no experience farming. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid. I'm not, even, I'm not from Wisconsin. I grew up mostly in the South and the Midwest. Uh, ended up in Madison, Wisconsin for graduate school. I studied uh, ecology and complex system science, trying to understand ecosystems as complex systems and then how, how do we deal with com complexity. Uh, and so my PhD research was looking at the historic ecosystems in the Midwestern United States, which was the oak savanna, which was also, there was a lot of oak savanna in the South all the way down uh, into southern Texas, all the way up into uh, Canada. There was some on the East Coast and most of California and a lot of the West Coast and Central Valley was all uh, oaks. Again, different species of oaks, but the same basic ecosystem type, which is scattered trees. It's not a forest, it's continuous grassland. So it's herbivore dominated landscape. It's a grassland ecosystem that also has scattered trees, usually fruit and nut trees, oaks, hickories, walnuts, apples. Um, and so that was the ecosystem that was here before. And it's one of these ecosystems that's like super, super productive. It can have like a lot of animals on it. It can feed a lot of wildlife. It can feed a lot of humans. And it was basically everywhere for like thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And when the Europeans arrived, it essentially disappeared. Uh, it's now considered the most uh, endangered ecosystem in North America. I'd say it's probably even just gone, almost gone completely, except in a, in a few places. And so where they continue to have grazing animals because without the grazing animals, you can't maintain a savanna. So uh, anyway, I'm, I was trying to grapple with this idea of how do we restore oak savannas? And my, a lot of my motivation for, for researching this was this passion for restoration ecology, realizing that most of the ecosystems across North America are highly uh, degraded and damaged due to uh, modern industrial agriculture. So our soil is poisoned, uh, and most of the topsoil has actually been lost uh, to erosion. It's now sitting in the Gulf of Mexico in completely irretrievable state. Uh, it, it, you know, add to that all the, the chemicals we, we poison the soil with, uh, and then biodiversity loss, and then water poisoning, the water situation. You can't swim or fish in any water in the southern United States. There's abundant water, but it's, it's all poisoned. And so seeing that and realizing as human beings, uh, if we don't fix these e ecosystems, our future generations don't have a chance. It's like a really pressing thing. People freak out a lot about climate change. And that's a whole different discussion that I don't think we need to get into here. But my point is that uh, what's what to me is way more pressing than whether or not it's going to get warmer in the future is whether there's going to be soil to grow food on and water to drink. To me, that's like a much more pressing thing. So I was studying like, how do we restore these systems? And what I realized by really looking deeply at what the Native Americans were doing here, because they were living in these systems and in some sense created the oak savannas here after the Ice Age. We had oak savannas before, but it was ma uh, mastodons that were maintaining it. Uh, they, they all went extinct. All the megafauna went extinct. Um, and then after the Ice Age, the, the, the humans moved in, uh, Native Americans, and they used fire to keep the landscape open. They intentionally created 
oak savanna. So as a as an ecologist, we go we call these systems um, the, the the natural system. But if you take right. a piece of land and let it go, it doesn't turn into oak savanna. It turns into in this in the eastern United States, it turns into a closed canopy forest, which is relatively low diversity and doesn't produce very much food for humans. So the Native Americans were managing oak savanna ecosystems as agriculture. They were managing them to produce food. They ate the nuts. The acorns were a staple crop, and they hunted the the game. And they intentionally burned in patterns to move game around. They practice a form of rotational grazing using fire instead of fences. And so once you realize that, it's like, holy cow, um, they weren't just hunter-gatherers, just, you know, picking berries and nuts and hunting a few deer every once in a while. They were they engineered the ecosystems of the entire continent. And when the Europeans arrived, they saw what they described as parkland. When you look at how the, the, the first settlers described the lands, they called them parklands because they looked like manicured lands. But they assumed that the Indians were passive and weren't doing anything. And part of Manifest Destiny was that the Native Americans aren't using this land. We need to use it. And so we need to build, we need to, to tame it and create agriculture which Europeans defined as square fields with fences around them where you grow crops. So anyway, realizing that the only, basically what I realized in the, in the process of doing my PhD research is that the only way we can restore these ecologically functional systems, because not only did they produce food for everybody, but they grew topsoil. They didn't just lose it or lose a right. little bit of it. They weren't sustainable. They were regenerative. They were regenerating the soil they had extremely high biodiversity, extremely high productivity, just base productivity. More calories are growing there than in a lot of our you know, agricultural fields. And so I kind of realized that the only way we can restore the ecology of our planet is to do it in a way that also grows food. Because in the conventional restoration paradigm, in the academic paradigm, even in the conventional environmentalist movement, humans are seen as bad. They're, they're the right. ones that we need to protect the land from human. If we're going to, if we're going to do something good for the land, we got to put up walls and keep people out. We got to do preserving. We've got to create a nature preserve, which is a place where humans aren't allowed to do damage. And so what I realized is that the only way that we can fix the land isn't by letting it go. It's by actively working the land and producing food. And so we see that, you know, our landscapes are deeply sick. They've, they've been so highly degraded. They're in a state, they're like in a, almost comatose. They're like kind of yeah. at the end. And humans, we're in the same boat. Yeah. Like human health has been completely degraded to the point where we're just barely hanging on there with like excessive use of pharmaceuticals, just stringing us along and keeping us alive. And uh, so I, I realized that the only way to heal the land is actually to produce good food to heal the people. Like we can't heal people without healing the land. And we can't heal the land without healing people. We have to do both at the same time. And when I realized that, I realized, okay, uh, me going into academia and becoming a professor is probably not, I, like, I don't see any mechanism to, to achieve this goal, this vision uh, in, the, in the academy. Like the only right. way to do this is to see if it works to start a farm. And so I basically quit my PhD program uh, and started a farm. How long ago was that, Peter? That was in 2012, 10 years ago. 
And so um, you went in there, like you said before, you didn't grow up on a farm. You grew up in the Midwest and everything. But you, what you did is you took something that was basically academic that you actually did leverage into more of a call to action for yourself. Instead of kind of repeating and parroting the same narratives over and over again, you choose to be the change basically that you saw that is needed in this country. And so what that is, that's a, you know, that's a pathway that you gave yourself. It's a roadmap. And, you know, me growing up in the Midwest as well, I grew up in the Southern Plains of Texas in the Panhandle. And, you know, to your point of the soil and to our, I mean, it is, it's poisons. You know, I, I, I grew up in the Dust Bowl where the Dust Bowl happened. And it's just, you know, we still have the Dust Bowls every year. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, there's so much dirt in the, in the sky, you know, that people really don't understand how it got there, how it's still getting there. Um, you know, I was talking to Will Harris with White Oak Pastures, and he was talking about the Gulf of Mexico too, is because, you know, the Mississippi River, you're close to it, flows all the way down the continental United States from north to south. And people don't realize how much of our, basically, of our nation we've lost. And it's been a cover-up. And people can't really deny it anymore. People are going to try to, and there's cognitive dissonance. But then you have somebody like a... You have a generation that is younger right now that that wants to be part of the change that you basically saw 10 years ago. Aiden, kind of, you, you wrote about it in the, in the Substack article, Pointing My Compass North. Kind of since you started your own personal journey, how do you look at Peter now? How do you look at your understanding from where you were raised and understanding what food was, agriculture, and everything? Where's the flip? Where's the where's the call to action to you as far as like Peter? He knew that he couldn't be a professor. What is it, what is it like for you now? Now that you've discovered this, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so uh, I grew up I grew up in uh, like a suburb of Los Angeles, and um, I guess this is interesting, but it's also pretty typical. Uh, like as a kid, we weren't taught too much about like where food comes from, as far as like. Um, like how it's produced, right? We were just told that farmers somewhere out there, and in California specifically, that's like the Central Valley, farmers out there produce food, it ends up getting trucked into grocery stores. Um, so my understanding as a child and, and growing up was always that food comes from the grocery store. Um, and never really too much past that, just because it was always there, right? Um, but as I kind of started to understand um, more about like soil science and the, the kind of the health of the planet. Uh, it led me to look a little bit deeper in terms of like, what do these practices, what does monocropping agriculture, what does conventional livestock um, operations, what, are that, what does that do to the soil? Uh, because when you think about it, like, like Slim, you always, um, like you always reference, everything comes from the soil. Like it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Even, you know, us as, as humans, we ultimately come from the soil and, you know, not to get too metaphysical, but we're going back there at some point too. So um, I think for me, like the real pivot, like the real pivoting point was coming to the understanding that um, if you don't take care of the soil, whatever else comes out of it, whether that's crops or livestock or anything else is going to be compromised. So that I think was the biggest kind of like, pivot point for me to start to look into producers and start to look into the practices that those producers are, uh, are operating under to get a better sense of um, like the, the nutrition that's coming from the products. Right. 
Hey guys, I had to interrupt you here. I had to, I have to tell you a story. Uh, we'll get back to Peter and me here in a little bit, but, uh, I'm in the Austin airport. I'm flying to Charlotte today <laughs> and I had to tell you all what I, I usually do when our, you know, it's one of those cowboy stories. We're always like messing with people and messing with each other. That's for sure. So I've been, uh, basically getting some barbecue the last couple of days. I went from uh, Amarillo to Lubbock to Lockhart to Luling to Austin. <laughs> and every place I had barbecue from Lubbock to Lockhart to Luling. Well, I didn't get any in Austin, but I got it from Cooper's and I got it from um, Black's, Terry Black's and Lockhart. But the funny thing about that is, is, you know, I want every one of y'all to start going out there and asking all these wonderful barbecue places in Texas and say, hey, where do you get your beef? Do you get it from the Beef Initiative and why not? And uh, let's start a movement there. Anyways, here's the story. I've been doing this for a while now. Whenever I didn't fly really much during COVID. But uh, one day I was sitting there. My uh, father was going to take me to the airport there in Amarillo. And said, hey, I got an idea. We got all this bacon <laughs> that we got from Justin there at Panhandle Meats. And I get my eggs local from a lot of different people in the Panhandle whenever I'm up there. So I made about three uh, breakfast tacos, uh, bacon and eggs. And so it was an early flight. I think I was flying to Miami. But anyways, got on the flight and this this particular time. So you get on that flight and you watch all these people, you know, you go through TSA, they're checking, make sure you're not a terrorist and make sure you take your shoes off. Hell, I don't even wear underwear anymore when I go to the airport. I just tell them, I said, hey, I didn't wear any underwear because uh, that's where I keep my silver. And I uh, didn't want y'all confiscating it. Anyways, I've had about five pocket knives. <laughs> I always forget. And so I'm always buying pocket knives. I think it's subconscious. Anyways, so I hijacked and I uh, basically, I, ooh, that's a bad word. I didn't hijack. I smuggled in two breakfast tacos that were still warm that were made with um, good beef bacon from Justin from Panhandle Meats. And so I'm sitting there, and we're, uh, they forgot to gas up the plane there in Amarillo. So we're, it's the first flight of the day. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so we're sitting there, and it's delayed. And I said, well, this is opportune time to uh, get these people awake. So I started unleashing and uh, unwrapping these breakfast tacos. But before that, I looked at everybody, and I found out the best. And I'm sitting towards the back of the plane. And so... <laughs> So I'm scoping out the best sniffer I can find in, you know, a good proximity away from me to see if that old sniffer, and I mean nose, uh, you know, if, if they catch that scent of that breakfast taco. So I'm on, I'm unwrapping this breakfast uh, taco, bacon and eggs, fresh. Oh, gosh, the, the aroma is just amazing. And so I'm unwrapping this breakfast taco, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at the biggest and the closest sniffer that I think is going to catch the scent. And it reminds me of being out on an elk hunt once. And uh, on that elk hunt, you know, we had these jackasses that uh, came in. I think they were from Philadelphia. Nothing against Philadelphia, but they were jackasses from Philadelphia. But anyways, we're on this elk hunt. We're about a day back. And this dude starts smoking a cigarette about a mile away. And we can smell that shit. So I understand that people can smell and so can elk. So don't smoke when you go on an elk hunt. 
Anyway, so I'm in this plane. We're waiting to get fueled up. That's probably a good thing when you're on a, a, a flight. It was American Airlines, by the way. And uh, all of a sudden, that aroma starts kicking in. And I, I guarantee you that sniffer that I identified, that I, I put that target on with my visual, well, that thing starts perking up. And all of a sudden, <laughs> see that old head turn a little bit, turns a little bit more. He's trying to find out where that damn breakfast taco smells coming from because everybody else has been eating stupid $12 croissants filling decadence, you know, at the, in that $10 cup of coffee, too. So um, I didn't smuggle in my coffee, but I smuggled it in, and all of a sudden we're sitting there for 20 minutes. Got a whole plane, everybody's head's turning left and right. We're getting some sniffing going on, but... Uh, <laughs> It's just one of the things I do for fun. Good. Today, I'm in Austin. I didn't bring any uh, breakfast taco, but I did bring uh, some barbecue. So it's it's almost gone, but it's going to be breakfast. And so I don't think it's going to smell as good as that breakfast taco. But everybody out there, we need to start asking people where they get their meat from whenever they're uh, making the best barbecue in Texas. Or how about the best barbecue in Wisconsin? You buy it from Mastodon Farms there at Peter Allen. So y'all uh, y'all enjoy this uh, the rest of this interview with Peter. He's part of the Beach Boys now. And uh, he's going to start selling some subscription boxes too. Y'all enjoy this. Enjoy the Substack. I'll let y'all know what I'm doing in Charlotte when I get to Charlotte. There'll be more at the end of this. Y'all take care. Oh, wish me luck. I'm flying. Shit. Right. And one thing that it makes me think of right now, uh, Peter, you put a decade into this and you have young guys, you have people out there really, you know, from my position, all the input that I get, all the feedback that I get from uh, producers, farmers, ranchers, uh, consumers, you know, the general public, there's a detachment there. Detachment, especially from people that are trying to regrow the soil, trying to regrow our paradise in which it once was that was first stewarded by the Native Americans. And the one thing I started the Beef Initiative about was one of the major reasons is to give the American rancher producer a voice again. And in you coming, switching from academia into your own basically sovereign, you know, life that you, you were going to steward, you as a producer, what is some of your pain points that you focus or that you have to focus on every day to make sure that you guys move forward in your business and your mission as far as doing, you know, this ecological, you know, struggle that is, you know, it's a hundred year plan. You know, you won't even see the final resort, results of what you started. What is starting from the beginning so the general public can understand what is it like for you to be able to try to do everything you're doing, use the land tools to regrow the soil, you know, have a business where you can, you know, you can sell that animal protein to the general public. Kind of tell us a day in the life of Peter Allen right there. Um, yeah, so there's a couple questions there. Mm -hmm. Day in the life versus pain points. Um, day in the life is all over the place. I mean, every day is different. Um, and part of my journey we, when we, when, when I decided I wanted to, you know, buy land and start a farm, uh, we had a couple options, you know, you, you can, you know, scrape together money. We had family helping us We're doing all these things to try to like do whatever we could to like get on land. And with, you know, with it, it's the, the amount of money that we basically were able to pull together, we could buy something like 40 acres with a house and a barn. 
or 80 or 100 acres vacant land with nothing on it. And so we chose the latter. I had a big vision of what I wanted to do. I wanted to plant tens of thousands of trees. I wanted to run all kinds of different animals. Um, and so we chose the latter, which means we, they were rough in it. Like my wife and I were living in a tent for a while until I built a yurt, which we lived in until I built a cabin, which we lived in until I built our house. We just started in the basement until we built the upstairs. So it's been a very long process. So a lot of my day-to-day life is not even involved directly in the production. That's, that's like number one that has to come first. But any extra time I have, I'm you know, building things, uh, building infrastructure. We're going to start building a barn next year because um, we just got vacant land. And one thing I didn't appreciate when I got started, having not done a farm before or even been a farmer, is uh, the importance of built infrastructure. Uh, I was kind of thinking, well, I'm doing it all the all natural way. I don't really need a barn. I don't really need this and that, which is sort of true. Like we've, we've like succeeded. Um, but boy, like having an indoor place to store machinery so it doesn't rust out in a few years is, <laughs> would, is really nice. And it actually like makes financial sense to invest in that building uh, to be able to save your stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I've learned a lot of lessons along the way, although I wouldn't go back and change it. I mean, the the process of doing all these things has been just like amazing. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and do it, do it all over again. In terms of pain points, I think one of the challenging things when you are um, producing something regeneratively, right? And so these words like, or used to be organic and now it's, sure. then it was like sustainable. And now people are saying regenerative. Um, I'm a real stickler for words and their definitions. And so I like to to define my words and be very uh, intentional about that because there's a lot of watering down being done. Organic was watered down into like almost nothing. It's, it's almost a joke. What is considered organic now? Uh, And they're just now starting to do the same thing with regenerative. So now there's a regenerative third party labeling thing. Uh, and now you can buy eggs in the supermarket that are like certified regenerative and they're probably better than, you know, eggs from the supermarket that are grown in these big giant hen houses that are essentially an abomination. Right. But, but versus like a small scale producer who's like in with his animals every day, who's taking care of them and making sure they're living a good life. There's no way to do that at scale in a way that you're selling all over the country in every single Whole Foods or whatever, you it, people don't understand scale, and so with regenerative, if you're doing it right, so the way I define regenerative is something that is regenerating life on the land. So, so you there is more life on the land as a result of the production of that product than there would be if you hadn't done it. Which means building soil, increasing biodiversity, increasing the water storage capacity of the soil. Uh, all of those things are necessary to be for me to say that this is regenerative. And so, but it takes more human effort to produce things that way. You can mechanize some, I mean, I still drive a tractor, but I'm not, you know, growing, you know, hundreds of acres of corn to feed, you know, my cows in a feedlot. Um, I use it to move hay around because we don't get, the grass doesn't grow for half the year here. Uh, and I just, I, ha- I have to make hay. I have to have a tractor and I sure. have to, at least to do it at a scale that's reasonable. So, but what people don't understand, because you go into the grocery store and you see grass fed beef, 
And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have grass-fed beef, right? Well, they're not the same thing. The grass-fed beef from the store is from Australia and it's been subsidized and it costs $5 a pound. I can't produce it for $5 a pound. I mean, like I can't even just, just the base production, like you buy a cow, you graze it on grass, you feed it hay, you get it processed, you put it in a freezer, you store it, you truck it out to somebody. I can't, can't do that for $5 a pound. So, but people don't understand the difference between grass-fed beef in the supermarket and what I say is grass-fed because they're both grass-fed. Like, what's the difference? Beef is beef, right? And so that is a major challenge of educating people. And it's double-edged because I don't want my meat to be super expensive. I don't want it to be only an option for like the uber wealthy. Like that's, right. I, I didn't get in this to just like cater to extra wealthy people who want to feel good about what they eat. Like I want families to be able to feed food that nourishes their children so that they grow up into strong, healthy, clear thinking human beings. But that's what I want. Um, and so it's difficult, but like I have to, in order for me to survive, I have to charge enough that I can survive. Right. Like a, it's just sure. like a reality and people don't understand all that goes into doing something the right way. And, and that it has to be more expensive because we're not huge. We don't have all these economies of scale. My processing is really expensive. Like all of these things I'm paying super high price point for because I'm not a big guy. I'm a yeah. little guy. Um, and so I would say that through the last 10 years of like building a direct market meat brand from scratch, um, that has been the more challenging thing is just explaining people. I mean, I've, I've literally had people saying, telling me that I should give my meat away because cows just eat grass and grass grows for free. <laughs> that goes to show you the true, the, the, the vast amount of detachment that we have from knowing what food is. True yeah. food, true yeah. nutrition on that point. You know, and people, the biggest thing that I, it's not that I laugh at it, but it is laughable that people can look at somebody, you know, as you that really stewards the land and the animals into something that is extremely healthy it, without question, very almost no inputs into the animals themselves, except what comes from the soil comes from the earth. And people really do not understand what value is in food. And they look at something as, uh, as laughable as a price and they try to do comparison Comparison is something that they, you know, they can order on Amazon or like you said, you know, somebody says they're regenerative and they're grass fed, but they're really just getting their beef from a different country and it's wet aged, it's packed, it's shipped and in ways that they don't understand. Really, they don't know where in Australia or maybe it was from Brazil or maybe it was from Africa. You know, you can start a dairy cow, you know, have a 10 year old dairy cow and put it on grass for a while and call it a grass fed beef, you know, in, in the supermarket. And that's the that's the ignorance of the general public. But you can't really blame them because there really hasn't ever been a lot of education for them to be able to funnel into to, to get this type of education and that's you know that's what you are you know you're you're a producer you're a farmer but you're also a number one thing you're probably more of an educator than anything i would say yeah but we do uh a lot of work to educate not just our like customers but uh i i help a lot of people both through courses that we run and uh just private consulting to set up farms and do it the right way and set up um you know direct market meat business 
Sure. Okay, Aiden, on that note, you went out, you left uh, you left your place there, and one day you went out and you hit the uh, hit the streets and you went to a farmer's market. And you finally, at one point in time, how many people did you go through? How many hands did you shake? And you found Peter. Tell us about that experience. So, yeah, just to clarify, I didn't actually find Peter at the Chicago farmer's market. Okay. I found him on a podcast, but I did talk to, I mean, probably at this point, like, 25 maybe 30 different producers uh not all doing meat some doing produce and stuff too but that's all good um but i think just what i want to circle back on um really quickly uh if i may sure. is about about the education point and about like the consumer's general ignorance or however you want to frame that i think what's what's important to consider and what was really impactful for me to consider was to kind of disregard labeling, um, yeah. whether it's organic or grass fed or regenerative or whatever. Um, and, and really kind of focus on, like you always talk about slim talking to the producer themselves and asking them what exactly they're doing and not with like a, you know, um, conspiratorial inquisition kind of thing, but just, just why, like, what are you doing? Like, how are you, how are you raising your cows? Why are you raising your cows like that? And then Again, like you always say, more than likely the producer is going to come from a place of educating you on why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing it. And then you have a lot more, you have a lot more, uh, you're a lot more informed as a consumer. You can make choices a lot better as opposed to just going off of a label because it, you know, this is an entire different podcast in and of itself, but the regulatory capture um, of this country's labeling laws are such to the point that you you honest to God can't trust anything you read on a package. And I would again, probably, I would probably take it even further and say that yeah. there's almost with very, very few exceptions, nothing that you can buy in a store that has any kind of a label on. I don't care what the label says. If it has a label like that on it, uh, it's not regenerative period. Yeah. Yeah. And so the only way to buy any food that is regenerative, because it almost has to be done at least at this point in time, in pretty small scales, which means that those producers can't put it in a supermarket. Supermarkets don't deal with guys raising 20 head of steers a year or 50 or even 100 or even, you know, several hundred. They're, sure. you know, they're dealing with, you know, the big pack houses. And so the only way to get really good food, with a few exceptions, I know like Will Harris, you can get his stuff around and that's, that's great. There are a very few exceptions, but as a general rule, uh, I don't care what the label says. If it's if you if you're buying it in a store, it's not regenerating the soil. It just no. isn't. You have to go to human beings. Uh, whether that's in a farmer's market, you can find them online. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of different ways to find it now, but it's not in a store. No, and you know the supermarket was <laughs> was created after basically, and they're very proud to say, you know, the supermarket was basically created in 1971. Whenever we went off the gold standard and we started creating a lot of fake commodities, and they've been injecting those fake commodities into our food systems ever since. You know, and throughout my lifetime, especially as my childhood, you know, they they did have some integrity to labels. You had to, you know, there was something that was, you know, there was something that there was some truth to it. 
anymore. It, it's, it's a cartoon world. Uh, you go into the supermarket, you know, the packaging and the labeling and the world-class marketing that they are able to basically uh, pull off is, is done by a regulatory capture. I mean, you know, people, I guarantee you people listening to this right now, I bet 80% of them don't know that the GMO is not even on the packaging anymore in the United States. It's actually bioengineered and it's a barcode that you have to uh, scan and then you get to the terms and services agreement of, you know, Facebook and Google combined. So, you know, what's going into this packaging, into the labeling, into the food products themselves, it's almost like, you know, people want to know all the whys, the what's and the how's of everything anymore. It's this, I just don't even pay attention to it. And I refuse to allow myself to have an option to that type of market access in which is basically destroying our land and our health in this nation. And, and you, you get a lot of people that, you know, quote unquote, like you, uh, Peter, as far as regenerative, the, the battle is daunting for you. And that's what people, the general public needs to understand. And the best way to help you to support you is to basically develop a relationship with you and that's what aiden's done by aiden going out there and establish a relationship with you now you're establishing a relationship with the beef initiative we're going to you know you're you're in the beef initiative now we're taking steps to where you can sell subscription boxes through the beef initiative um, one thing that I would like you to do is kind of give us your portfolio. Uh, what are you selling these days? What are you, you know, what are you moving forward with as far as your animal protein, everything that is Macedon Valley Farms? Let's uh, let's give a quick uh, overview and uh, give us an online brochure, really. Yeah, so we sell um, meat to, uh, and that's it. So sure. beef, pork, chicken are our main things. We've done uh, lamb, goat, and turkey in the past i think we'll probably start doing i'll probably bring sheep back in we, our 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 ecology here needs sheep mm-hmm. uh and it needs goats and so we're we're that's like kind of the next direction i've got to build up some infrastructure thing about like goats especially is they can't survive without a shelter to go into like you have to have a barn or they will die uh especially in weather like this like just Five minutes ago it started raining it's like 38 degrees raining with winds whipping from the northeast <coughs> and so that kills goats you have to have a shed to put them in, in weather like this so anyway that's uh ongoing that will be coming in the future but right now our main focus is beef pork and chicken so we have a grass-fed beef herd uh we breed red devon uh which is a is a genetics that are well developed for uh, finishing on grass with good marbling in colder climates. We really like the breed. We've been working with them for 10 years, uh, developing them for, I'm really brutal with calling. So, um, any animal that's not just thriving at our farm doesn't get to continue to reproduce. And so we've got really excellently, uh, animals that are adapted just to our Valley, the specific, you know, climate and parasite loads and everything we have here we just have animals that thrive here so that's our beef and then um we raise about 50 to 80 hogs a year uh rotating around pastures uh where we give them access to the fruit and nut trees uh in the seasons when they're available uh we also uh milk a cow and so they get the pigs get a lot of milk and uh I've actually planted, I haven't let them loose in it yet, but I created something I call the pig paradise. So I took about 20 acres and planted 
uh, I don't know, five or 6,000 hazelnuts, apples, oak trees, uh, mulberries, all things that pigs like to eat. The trees are still small. I'm not yet, they're not producing yet. So I'm not, I'm not grazing them in there yet, but in a few years, that's going to be the only place I run pigs. They're just going to go in circle around pig paradise, uh, trying to minimize the amount of grain that I have to buy. Uh, we buy local non-GMO grain that we do feed the pigs a ration with. Um, but I also have started, I developed a way to grow corn uh, without tilling. So it's no-till corn. Uh, and I'm at a scale. I can do one or two acres with that. I, I'm working on uh, modifying some existing uh, old farm equipment to allow me to like increase the scale so I can produce more feed for the pigs. So I, I produce a little bit, but not enough to feed all those hogs. Um, and then once I get a barn, I'll be doing breeding of the hogs as well. Right now I work with three or four different breeders, uh, and I just buy their piglets. So, and then we, uh, run chickens on our pastures as well. Uh, we have those chicken trackers, but we let them free range. So they actually, uh, we only do a couple batches a year and we time it with the grasshoppers. So mm-hmm. they're really, I mean, most pastured poultry is I mean, it's great. It's, it's so much better than a chicken house for raising a meat bird. Um, but they're still in cages. They're just outside, which is better. A hundred, it's a hundred times better. But the animal is still getting 100% of its diet from the grain bin. It's not actually eating much of that forage. When you move, and even if you move them once a day, you watch the chicken. <coughs> they go into a new, you move their tractor one, one, bit, one size over. They got this fresh grass. They immediately run around and eat a little bit of it. But then in five minutes, you got enough in there. They've trampled and pooped on it all. And then they just go back to the grain, right? So we move them, but we also like let them free range. The reason we do that is we have livestock guardian dogs, which keep the predators away. Otherwise, they'd, they'd be gone in just a few nights. Right. Uh, if we didn't have dogs protecting them. So um, they're able to free range. And they actually do get upwards of 25 to 30% of their calories from uh, insects. Uh, and we use a, we use a breed that's better than the traditional white Cornish cross. Um, that's better at hunting. It's a little bit more, uh, got some of its instincts intact. People don't know the story of the Cornish cross and how it's been bastardized, Mm -hmm. uh, into a, into a, into a literally a whole breed of animal. It can't reproduce. It can't eat or drink on its own. Essentially they get so big, they can't walk because their breasts are so big. They just fall over on their face. They have to like lay down with their beaks in the feeder to, to survive. It's pretty gross. Um, and so anyway, to produce chicken at scale, there's some compromises have to be made. We're still buying grain in, but, um, we're figuring out ways of doing that. And then what that allows us to do, we've taken upwards of 60 acres out of conventional GMO cropland, uh, corn and soy. And we've restored that to the native tall grass prairie, uh, which we use for hay. Uh, we use, we cut that for our hay for our cows. And then the, the soil is so degraded in these fields. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable the difference between the soil in our pastures and the soil mm-hmm. in those croplands that have been cropped for a hundred years. And so we're using those chickens. They, when they poop, it's like jet fuel for grass. Uh, see, we're importing sure. nitrogen in the form of grain to feed the, the, the chickens, but then they poop fertilizer and help us restore the soil uh, in those highly degraded grasslands. How, many, grasslands, how, many, how many years you've been doing that on those cropped lands that you just mentioned? 
Um, That's one, one question I get like all six years, and the mm-hmm. other has been like I guess this would be the third or the fourth year. Uh, we def- we took one out as kind of a small field, uh, and then we ended up acquiring some more land, and then took a, a, a considerably big bigger set of fields out about four right. years ago. You yeah, can, I get that you can question. Make really fast, but it does take uh, carbon and biology. So feeding hay to cows uh, and uh, cow poop, like yeah. the, the a so- soil that has been cropped is dead, and it's been the, the top soil is essentially gone. The subsoil is compacted, so plants have a really hard time growing in there. It's a lot of weeds. If you don't do anything, you can plant your grasses or your alfalfa, your clover, whatever, and they might come up, but they're not going to be happy. They're going to be just hardly growing at all. And so the, you really need carbon and you really need biology. And biology, the, the most perfect biology for grassland soils is uh, the microbes that are found in cow poop. No. I mean, the difference between like the year that we finally, like we, we took, the, took it out of crops, we planted uh, native tall grass prairie, and it just looked like crap. And it was all weeds. And I just go out and mow the weeds and it looked terrible. And I finally, there was nothing for the cows to eat in there, but I finally just let the cows in, put some hay out there. And the next season, it was just like green for the first time. Um, wow. And so, and then you add in the chickens and you can really, I mean, without any of those things, it might take 10 years to develop a decent, or even 20 years to develop a decent little small layer of topsoil in uh, a former crop field, in a degraded field. But when you have animals on your side, you can do it in just a few years, if you, especially if you, if you know what you're doing and you have a really well thought out and planned, you could do it in two years. You could have a rockin' field. Really? What people don't understand, you know, and this is one thing that I, there's a lot of division in the world today. I think we can all agree yes. whether it's political or ideological or economic or whatever it is. Everybody's like at odds. One thing, that, one thing that everyone can agree on is that we need soil. Yeah. And you, you just can't, whether you're vegetarian, vegan, whatever, like you have to have soil. You have to have topsoil. What people don't know that they need to know is that there's only one way to grow topsoil. There's literally only one. Forests do not grow topsoil. They grow a, a layer of humus on top yeah. of subsoil. All the fertility that would be in the soil is up there in those big old trees. And that's fine. I love forests, but they don't create. When we came to this continent, Illinois and Indiana had five to 15 feet of topsoil. Topsoil, that's above the subsoil. That's just organic matter. There's only one way to grow topsoil, and that's with grasslands. And there's only one way to turn the grasslands into the soils, and that's with grazing animals. So we, it's 100% critical that we have herbivores, large ruminant animals grazing all over. I mean, we need ruminants everywhere to, be, to, to regrow the soil that we've been, that we've sent down into the Gulf of Mexico for the last, you know, hundred years. Yeah. And, you know, I just like to call, you know, everybody's like, oh, do you use goats? You use lambs? You use chickens? Well, you use all the land tools <laughs> and that's what they're called. They're called land tools. What do land tools do? They regrow the soil. And, you know, and that's something that is very uh, absent from the general public's awareness and understanding or even being able to comprehend. Um, on that note, you, you, we spoke last week, I believe it was last week, and you said we need to start, you know, we need to understand we need to eat the earth. 
We need to eat the earth. We need it. We need this from soil to fork. Everybody needs to understand every one of those, you know, those, those, those pivot points of what happens. And if you can, if you can understand the vertical integration of basically from soil to our fork is the vertical integration back into human health. And, and that's where we're detached so much. And on that, Aiden, you're a young man, you're, you're, you do uh, training, you do all kinds of things. But how long have you been on your consumption model? We'll say this consumption model that is food, audio, and video. Because I, I talk about it all the time. I don't watch TV. I don't look at all the fear porn. I don't do, do anything in, that in my life. And it's been years and years. And, and I have such a peace of mind that I don't allow it into my head. But you, know, you being younger, it's a, it's a very bold statement that you're saying, hey, this is how I'm going to live my life. This is how I'm going to point my compass in in and express the value of that because that's what we need, and especially young men in the United States and young women. And we need to understand this is a call to action in so many different ways. It is a lifestyle now. Yeah. Um, so kind of as you mentioned there, one of the one of the most impactful um aspects of like kind of changing my consumption model was around the training that you mentioned. So um couple of years ago, I was competing more frequently in amateur kickboxing and Muay Thai competitions. Uh, and if you know anything about combat sports, one thing that you have to do is you have to make weight. So you have to uh, either, typically it, it comes in the form of losing weight in order to like make a weight class or anything like that. Uh, and one thing that I found incredibly inspiring about like for me, it, it turned out to be consuming more animal fats and animal protein. Uh, contrary to popular belief, that actually helped me lose weight. So, um, like I said, too, so uh, I, would, I would train, you know, twice, three times a day, come home and eat, like, a big steak and then just, like, a slab of butter on top of it. And I found that when I was consuming food in that way, I could wake up the next morning and turn around and, and go right back to the gym. Like, like, not that nothing had happened, but I felt a lot better than, you know, eating a pile of garbage, uh, you know, for dinner and, you know, watching TV and, and, and you know, <clears throat> validating that fear porn that you always, uh, you always talk about. So sure. um, one of the, again, like I say, like the, the reframing the, reframing the, the nutritional model in my head around, it's not about counting macros. It's not about, you know, trying to eat X amount of vegetables or X amount of fruits. It's eating according to, um, for me, I, I, I strongly believe in eating according to your genetic makeup, uh, but also eating according to how your body responds. Like I think most people nowadays, uh, they don't have the awareness around how food makes them feel, right? So they'll yeah. eat a pile of garbage, feel like garbage, but won't make that association. And I think that's, you know, likely due to, you know, brainwashing. I can speak just for my generation. I think it's a lot has to do with brainwashing and not providing those links uh, as a form of food education to young children. But again, I think that uh, for me making that association between like, I eat this, you know, I eat this steak, I wake up the next morning and I don't feel the effects of the training. I think that was a real kind of light bulb moment for me to just put that association into terms that I could feel. Cause I think, you know, experience is everything in, in, in these meat suits. 
Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to ask for permission to eat good food. And that's what a lot that's of people right. still, they, they feel like they have to have permission or, or some type of, you know, uh, mandate that they can go and, and create a consumption model on their own. Um, Peter, you talked scale a couple of times and, you know, that's where I, we're, we're, we're way off in the general public of what scale is what the what our intentions are should be as a nation you know in the early 70s you know eric butt said we're going to go feed the world we're going to go fence to fence we're going to monitor you know we're going to you know go big or go home that is stuck in our purview of our mindset you know and as a nation and i want to tell everybody you know what we never did feed the world you know what we did is we made cheap, uh, food very cheap based on subsidies and commodities and we basically created you know, um, a, a type of food system that basically quit feeding our communities. And, and that's what we did. And we took the value of our nutrition out of our communities, our small communities, the ones who used to be the most powerful in our, in the United States. And by going big and or going home and basically going fence to fence and trying to feed the world, we quit feeding our children. We quit, quit feeding several generations of Americans. Every regenerative farmer rancher that I meet, they always tell me, I'm not interested in feeding the whole United States. I'm really interested in feeding maybe a 60 mile radius around me. What is your perspective on from the last 10 years and what would be the best case for you to be able to be happy to scale the way that you want to scale, not somebody coming in from the outside in telling you, you have to scale this way? Yeah, I mean, I, basically in terms of scale, it, to, it depends on the land base. So I want to fully utilize my land base. Mm -hmm. I don't want to overutilize it because then that, then that chips away at the regenerative gains that we've made, right? That starts all, all living systems. So that's a human being, that's a lake, that's a piece of land, that's a mountain. They're, all living systems are moving one direction or another. They're either spiraling up in, in a regenerative way, they're growing in biological health and vitality and force, or they're spiraling down, they're degenerating uh, into uh, a degenerate and a destructive way of losing health, losing vitality. And so I basically want to stay, keep my land base in an optimal way of like spiraling up, of only increasing in vitality. And so one of the things about being a producer is that we are uh, subject to the whims of mother nature, right? So in a drought year, that means I got to cut, I got to destock my land, whether I slaughter and do a big meat sale, or I just take them to the sale barn or whatever I have to do. I've got to like maintain a balance with what mother nature's throwing at me and what I have to do for my market. And so in terms of like the, the right scale or scaling up, I, I just want to like be at the scale that my land can produce uh, regeneratively. And we're basically, we're kind of there where we're at right now in terms right. of scale. So I'm not even actually trying to scale up. Now, what I would be interested in doing is in terms of scaling up would be helping other producers to, to, uh, either transition or start new farms where they're producing. Because here's one of the things I talk about a lot in our um, farming course that we teach on, on how to design a regenerative farm is that doing production, like growing 
say grass-fed beef or pork or no-till veg or whatever it is, uh, producing food regeneratively is not rocket science. I mean, no, teenagers (laughs) can do it. It's like, it's really just like not the most difficult thing in the world. Now doing it well in tune with nature and understanding signals and feedback from nature, that, that takes a lot of practice and experience, but just the basic, you know, rotationally grazing cattle or whatever, it's just not rocket science. The hard thing is doing it at a profit and the hard thing is marketing it. And what, you know, when I first started, people were like, well, you'll never make money doing this. And it's like, well, but I'm going to sell directly to people. I'm just going to cut out all the middlemen. Uh, and when we started doing that, there was nobody doing that with beef besides doing it with like halves and quarters. But I was like, well, all the customers that I know of that would support us, they're not going to buy halves and quarters. They don't have chest freezers. They just have a regular freezer. I, I'm, I'm going to have to sell it in much smaller quantities. It's going to be a lot more work. So we started a subscription model. Uh, we call it a meat CSA, community supported agriculture, which kind of emerged out of the, the organic vegetable movement where uh, consumers would, customers would pay say, in, up front for like the whole seasons of produce coming up. And so we don't have our customers pay in advance. We just have them pay monthly in a subscription model and they just get a bundle of meat that they can fit inside their freezer every month. And as far as I know, we were the first people to ever do a subscription for meat um, mm-hmm. and 10 years ago. And so um, helping other people do that and starting a cooperative, uh, a marketing cooperative where the other um, producers don't have to do that marketing because um, that's the hard part. And that's where most people fail because you're talking about managing a website. You're talking about doing, you know, marketing to get customers, customer retention, fulfillment, all these things. And most guys are just like, I just want to have some cows. Like, I don't, yeah. don't want to deal with all that stuff. I just want to have some cows. Well, the truth is in today's market, if you just want to have some cows, you're going to lose money. Like you're just not gonna, you might be able to do it as a hobby and keep your full-time job and have some cows that you like, you know, check on on the weekends. Right. Uh, but you're, you're not gonna make a living, you know, producing uh, cattle unless you're, you know, doing something at a small scale, unless you're doing something pretty innovative and like actually getting the meat into people's hands. So helping other people do that, I'd I'd be interested in scaling up that way um, in terms of like a marketing kind of thing, but not so much like my land base, unless, you know, we end up somehow inheriting or some getting more land and then we'll, you know, scale up to match whatever that land base is. But um, yeah, and and I think that should, that like, I want to live in a world or somebody that has access to say 40 acres can have a homestead where they grow most of their own food and can make enough money to support on a, a family and say a big family. So they want to have six, eight kids. I don't care. I want them to be able to support all eight of those kids just on what they can produce and do on that 40 acres. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's completely right now. That's ridiculous. Like nobody you can't even come close to that. Like there's just no way to do it. So that's like the world that I want to see. So that's like what I want to try to move everything. Yeah. I'd love to bring 40 acres back into everybody's mindset because that used to be something, you know, the university of Texas, Austin was built on 40 acres. You had all kinds of ranches there. It was 40 acres. There was something about that 40 acres. One of the biggest things that, you know, I'm going to keep on preaching, especially in 2023, the biggest bottleneck of being able to do that for a, a smaller person, smaller farmer, rancher, producer is the processing centers. Yep. 
having market access to a decentralized processing center that is clean, that is not, you know, controlled by the four multinational corporations that which are very corrupt. We're not going to go into it on this podcast, but that is the number one pain point for anybody having that full through put as far as being able to steward that animal all the way to the fork of the consumer. That's where you make the profits and that's where the profits are stolen from the average producer because they're just having to sell off. Then those multinational producers or processors, basically, you know, they commoditize the cow or the animal even more, and then they're able to control the distribution as well. In that way, you know, we don't have market access to people like you because you can't have the right kill dates. You can't have everything that you need to be able to, you know, be profitable and to sustain what you've got going on. That's going to be something we're really bringing forward. I mean, here in Texas, within the Beef Initiative, we have two processing centers that are up and running now that are part of the Beef Initiative. Uh, you know, they are smaller scale, multi, you know, in, in the state of Texas, we use, we have 200 processing, microprocessing centers that are still mothballed. They're still there. They're still around. And so my dream is to get one in every county in the state of Texas, but also spread that out first with the awareness that it is possible. The reason that it's not happening anymore is because the multinational corporations, of course, are so huge and their their pockets are endless. And so it is, it's it's something that you you have to understand that we have to scale down. We have to scale our expectations down to the community again, down to that community to where everybody changes their consumer demand to people like you, Peter. And that's what, you know, we have a level of complacency with our food. It's driven by a, a yearning for convenience, you know, and that has gotten us in trouble. And, you know, this is going to be a, a long ro uh, road of education for most people that are coming in through the Beef Initiative. But right now we have between, I think, 80 or 90 producers. And one thing you're talking about, a cooperative marketing Every person that I've talked about that has placed their, their information in the Beef Initiative platform, they're basically scaling up to where they want to be, mm -hmm. that they're making those choices. They get to have more control because they're not out here trying to go through centralized social media platforms that don't let you advertise in certain ways, or you have to spend all your money just to, in hopes of doing some digital marketing that might be effective. Yep. And whenever we can get everybody to understand that, you know, the Beef Initiative is that type of marketing co-op where you can go out there and do what you do best. And then the people like Aiden get to help you have a voice, the voice of the American producer. That's that's the number one thing that we're going to be touching on in 2023. So um, Aiden, on that note, we've run about an hour now. Let us know what your path, your journey is going to be moving forward, uh, your involvement with the Beef Initiative, with Peter, what's going on in your life. And then, uh, Peter, I'm going to let you kind of wrap it up with uh, how to contact you, what your plans are for this winter, what they're like in Wisconsin, and then we'll go from there. Go ahead, Aiden. Awesome. Yeah, so <clears throat> my, uh, my plan moving forward with the Beef Initiative is to uh, – I really want to try to um, – like procedure, like, like create procedures and create a process, create like a standard process around um, this, this kind of conversation that we're having with Peter, but just uh, onboarding producers, generally speaking, into the beef initiative. Uh, I would love to be able to put something together that um, a lot more people like myself can, can kind of take and run with everywhere, you know, yeah. um, starting in the United States, of course, I'll be focused primarily on the upper Midwest Great Lakes region, but um, 
I want it. I want. I want to put something out there that can be scalable uh, around the world. And um, as far as uh, other stuff, I'll be going up to visit Peter uh, in a couple of weeks here. So <clears throat> look out for some some fun content from that. Uh, and then um, I'm hoping to be able to get down to Nashville uh, in December, early December, for the the USDA conference and yeah uh, those events. Yeah, I can't wait to meet you in person finally. Uh, and, and you just keep plugging ahead. I mean, what you've done right now is kind of setting a standard. It's been, I've, uh, that's what, you know, the beef initiative is grassroots. And you took an initiative to go out there and do that. We don't have to ask for permission. You know, it is open source. We are crowdsourced. We're doing this together. It's a collaboration. And uh, yeah, I really do appreciate how you stepped up, Aiden. And there's going to be a fun story to tell in 2023. So. Um, Peter, we're just getting started here with the beef initiative and you and everything. Uh, you and I are going to have many more conversations, uh, next week. We already got some meetings scheduled. Uh, what does the rest of the year look like for you? What do you want people to know about you after listening to this wonderful hour? Uh, you know, contact, whatever you want to, you know, let us know. And then I'm going to ask you a question at, at, whenever you're done and we'll, we'll, we'll exit out of that. Sure. Um, well, the first thing I got to start doing is chopping firewood because it's cold. <laughs> right. Cool thing how about cold this, does it, hey, how cold does it get there in that valley? Seriously, what's the, the coldest, coldest it gets? The coldest I have recorded where I am at is mm -hmm. negative 40. Excellent. That's what now, I was that, wanting to hear. That's not, supposed, <laughs> that's not supposed to happen. We're in USDA growing zone four, right. which shouldn't get less than negative 35, but I recorded negative 40. Uh, and that was cold. It was interesting to just drive my truck and like put my hand out the window without a glove on at negative 40. And it was, that's like the coldest your skin is ever going to experience. It's, it's interesting, but it takes a lot of firewood to stay warm. Uh, the, the house I built, uh, I put just an enormous amount of insulation. I've got a foot of insulation on the walls, almost two feet of insulation on the roof. So the cool thing about it and it's passive solar. So when the sun shines in, it heats it up in the sun, in the winter, not in the summer. Uh, and then the insulation holds that heat. So actually in the house, even though it's gotten down to 25 at night already, a couple nights this year, we haven't had to have one fire yet, We've had no heat. It's actually like, it almost stays, I have to crack the window during the day because the sun is with passive solar, you right. build your windows and your, and your roof so that the, and awning so that the sun doesn't come in in the summer. There's no solar gain in the summer, but then we get after the equinox is how I designed it. So after the fall equinox, we start getting sun in and that really warms it up. Like I have to open the windows uh, during the day, even if it's only 40 degrees outside because it gets too, too warm. So design is good, but we still need a lot of firewood and I haven't started getting firewood for this winter. So it's, <laughs> it's about time to start yeah. getting out there. And I've gotten lazy because we don't need as much as we used to because we built this house. It's got so much good insulation in it. We don't need as much firewood as we did. So I've gotten a little lazy. So I need to get out get my butt out there with a chainsaw and start cutting firewood. So that's my next big thing. Although I wanted to say one thing, which I like to talk about, I don't often get a chance to, but it seems like a, an appropriate place. Uh, sure. I like to think big. I like to have big visions and then I like, I go for it. So uh, one of those was starting this farm. Another one was building this house out of the trees from this property. That was a, a big thing. Uh, another one of my big visions is recreating uh, migrations. So the way our ecosystems used to work is the mastodons, the bison, they all came up to Wisconsin. Wisconsin, this area in particular, has the best quality forage 
food for herbivores on planet Earth for about four months of the year. The rest of the year, there's not much going on. Those mastodons did not stay here in the winter. They were not eating trees here in the winter. The bison weren't grazing here in the winter. They went down to Texas. Right. They went down to Texas. They didn't stay up here. But in the springtime, it starts getting hot in Texas. That grass starts drying up and they start moving back north again. And so I'd really like to figure out a way to bring back migrations into American uh, agriculture and specifically American cattle production. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out a way to have either a migratory herd. So I own land in Texas and I bring them back and forth every year or partnering with production uh, ranches in Texas. And I just get the feeders and I just bring them up and finish them off of here and then kill them. And then they don't have to go back. Um, anyway, I would like to personally spend my winters in Texas. I got a lot of family in Texas. I spend a lot of time in Texas as it is. Um, So that's for my own lifestyle, trying to figure out a way. I love winter here, actually. I I actually do love it, but it gets long. Yeah. It just keeps going and going and going. So like, (laughs) I like being here for most of it, but it would be nice to be able to get out for part of that and take my beautiful, wonderful family and my beautiful Jersey milk cow and go down to Texas where I can graze her on green grass and uh, get fresh green grass milk every day uh, instead of feeding her hay. Where the, the milk's not very good. I'm, I'm really picky about milk since we have our own milk cow. Mm-hmm. After they've been eat, eating hay for the winter, by the end of the winter, the milk is just not very good. The cream is like, it's really <laughs> thin. I'm like a cream snob. Right. It's not <laughs> thick and like yellow. It's just, yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. So anyway. Well, you, you, you've got work to do. And I love the vision, though. I really do. I mean, just all across the Midwest, you know, exactly like it used to be, you know. And, you know, you call it, it's a migration. We can call it a cattle drive. We can call yeah. it whatever, right? And yeah. uh, I think that's something we need to kind of put on the, the map as far as an aspiration and something that is an inspiration. Yeah, we need um, to design our food systems around the ecology of the planet that we live on. Exactly. I mean, we need to get back to where we were, where we came from. As long as we have access to really cheap energy, like we can get away from like the constraints of mother nature. Mm -hmm. But in the future, we may just have to go back to like, you know, designing our systems around the constraints. Like we have winter, like maybe we shouldn't be here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It it throws in a lot of common sense, you know, and I think we've lost that a lot. Um, On that note, the question I was going to ask you is, is kind of (laughs) twofold. You can answer half of it now, but in, I've had people contact me through, you know, Twitter, through social media, through emails saying, you need to have a micro summit in, in uh, Wisconsin, you know, and, and people are really kind of screaming from the rooftop that this needs to happen. And, and I would love to kind of plan something in 2023 because you have workshops, you have seminars, you have all kinds of things and that, you know, we can get everybody kind of chattering about how we're going to pull off a micro summit and we can give Aiden the responsibility of heading that up. Yeah, let's do it. I love that. When does the snow finally melt? Uh, it's done usually sometime in March. Fair enough. March yeah. is mud season. It's ugly here. This is the yeah. word. It well, May what, to October is is the time to be in Wisconsin. What's your favorite time of the year there? What when are you feeling best? The whole the whole May to October is just, just phenomenal. fantastic. I, mean, okay. I, never, I don't stop working, so I just keep my nose down. Right. But it's it's a it is it is a beautiful place to be and there's yeah. something special about, about every season. Um, but it uh, really is actually 
the the flowers in the summer and uh, the leaves right now are just phenomenal. Um, we got a really special place. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to give everybody out there some hope that we're going to have a micro summit out there at Macedon Valley Farms. How's that? Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. On, on this, go ahead. I was just going to say, if people want to uh, follow more about what we're doing, uh, you can go to MacedonValleyFarm.com. Uh, and we also do teach classes. We're working on developing one right now on uh, land access, trying to help people find land for like homesteads and small farms. Uh, and then we do a regenerative farm design class. All that's at MastodonValleyFarmSchool.com. Uh, and if you sign up for the email newsletter, then you catch a wind of when those courses actually become available. Because once we put them out, they're, they're live courses. So there's a start date uh, and they usually sell out pretty quick. And then you're on Twitter at Peter Allen. I think uh, it's just that. P. Clark Allen. P. Clark Allen. Okay. All right. There's a, a wealth of information there. I've already looked you over several times. Peter, it's going to be a pleasure working with you. I really do look forward to this. We're building out these nodes. Um, we didn't really get to talk much about decentralization of you know, uh, money and in food right now. The, the next podcast will be, we'll drill down more into Bitcoin and you know our viewpoints of it and everything like that. But I wanted this to be a really good introduction into you know, who and the why and everything like that. So Peter, thank you so much. Aiden, um, you know, thank you for writing your three-part series, you know, pointing your compass north. Um, how, how can people uh, get a hold of you? Uh, let everybody know before you say anything is texasslim.substack.com. Go and you can see uh, Aiden's writing. It's under Bitdern and uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating piece and you can follow it up. We'll probably put it in the show notes here uh, whenever we release this podcast. So Aiden, how can we get a hold of you and uh, kind of let us know your next steps? Yeah. So, um, Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, it's at Bitdern, B-I-T-D-E-R-N, no space. Um, also, if you're in the upper Midwest area, I go. I regularly attend the Chicago Bitcoin meetup. So Chicago Bit Devs, um, Open Blockchain, which is just uh, you know a secret Bitcoin, a, sec- a secret Bitcoin meetup in in uh, in name only. But anyway, yeah, get me on Twitter. Um, I'm looking forward to writing more uh, about Mastodon Valley, but just kind of providing more education um, for for people like myself, man. Like that's that's why we're doing this. Yeah, and you're doing a great job leading. Just keep on doing it. You're just getting started. I think that you're going to do some fascinating stuff this next year. I really appreciate you, Aiden. Uh, Peter, pleasure as always. Uh, we're going to have many more of these conversations. I'm going to let you guys run now. Um, And we'll be talking to you soon. Have a great weekend. And um, we'll talk to you both within a day or two. Take care, guys. Cool. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Much love. Hey, guys. Slim here. And I made it to uh, North Carolina. I made it to Charlotte. Uh, The plane trip was fun. Um, (laughs) Some people smelled a little barbecue. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and the story. it's good to be able to go around and talk to everybody. It's good to make this a lifestyle. It's actually very rewarding to actually get, you know, feedback from you guys. And it's been a while since I've uh, thanked a lot of people out there that are stra- uh, 
streaming side. So we are podcasting 2.0 right now. Uh, we are, if you want to do that, if you want to learn more, download the Fountain app. Uh, I'd like to give thanks. I'm getting better about this. Sometimes it takes me a while to get back to everybody, but we have a team that's starting to look at everybody. I want to call out, uh, hey, Brisket, at BTC Brisket, you guys. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, thank you. 10,000 sats. Brisket, love working with you. We're going to do big things in Australia at the Australian Beefus um, Summits. We're going to have more than one of those. So you guys pay attention to that. Uh, we've got uh, 3,333 sats from um, Green Everett. Thank you so much. All the way down, we've got uh, at Met Met, uh, 500 sats. We've got all across the board, we've got 120,000 uh, sats from Observant. Thank you, Observant. Uh, you're a hell of a supporter for the Beef Initiative and for uh, No Agenda, too. I think you're a producer for Adam over there. We've got 3,333 sats from, um, a, let's see, the Balzic, the Balzac. Uh, thank you, D-A-B-O-W-Z-A-K. Uh, we've got a thousand sats from uh, Trail Chicken. We've got five thousand sats from Crypto Sats, Cryo Sats. I'm sorry, uh, Murray underscore in thirty three hundred sats, three thousand three hundred thirty three sats from Gene Everett. Uh, we've got these coming in daily. So, guys, everybody that's contributing to the Beef Initiative, it is going into all these sats that you send through Fountain App. Just want you to know these uh, sats will be going straight into our scholarship funds for our ranchers. That's very important for people to understand that we are more about value for value exchange for the American rancher. Everything that we bring in, uh, we have made a lot of money off of these events or conferences because we haven't been trying to, you know, profiteer off of these. What we're doing is anything that we bring in the beef initiative. This is grassroots. It's grass fed from the ground up you guys are the ones supporting the beef initiative it's not venture capital funding this is you guys uh we're gonna create these um scholarship fund for the rancher jason rick of rick ranches he's gonna have the first scholarship in 2023 we're about to have a podcast in november we're gonna explain all of that so just know that your donations are going for good causes sometimes it goes for gas for me uh like liz and jake with uh charlotte bitcoin they were able to buy my ticket here to charlotte we're gonna have the cattleman's feast here tonight with gourmet caveman and the beef initiative the first cattleman's feast that we've ever done you'll be seeing many 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 more of these across the nation in 2023 when we start having all these micro summits. Everybody's going to get to start having their own micro summits within the Beef Initiative. You guys are doing this in real time. We're trying to report to you in real time. I'm going to get better at this. Uh, I'm going to be more front facing moving forward. You're going to hear my story. I have a hell of a story and I don't mind telling you guys this. This is about saving lives. This is about giving these children a chance that they've been robbed from. If you ever want to know what my intentions are, just listen to my damn voice. This is about changing something that has been robbed from us in this country, within our food supply, within our money supply, within our ranching industries. We have to get back to the basics. We're going to start living like our grandparents did, and that's going to be that international lifestyle, and it's based on value-for-value exchange. 
stay in the know with us. We're increasing our Substack uh, uh, subscriptions. We're getting more and more people coming in. You guys are participating in this. Give us your time, talent, and treasure. Share time, talent, and treasure, whatever it is. If you need to donate, go to our donation page at beefinitiative.com, donate. If you need to share our videos, the Substack, the podcast, YouTube, my Twitter handle, whatever it is, you guys share that out. We're not a marketing plan. This is being done by you. And I'm going to put it on every one of you individuals. If you're taking the time to listen to this, is it valuable? Give back. I've dedicated my life to this. Most of our uh, volunteers are coming in here. They're, they're trying to make a, a difference in this world right now. We're not about all the fear porn out there. We don't have to ask for permission for what we're doing. We've got so much coming up ahead of us. You guys start participating. Start giving your time, talent, and treasure. Make this your international lifestyle. Uh, we're going to go over the world. We're going to Australia, trying to get to Canada, going to Thailand, Tennessee. We're going to have a big um, meetup in Tennessee. But don't forget, before then, we're going to have the Kill It and Grill It south of Austin. $49 for the, some of the best steak, beef you've ever had in your life. You're going to get to tour the processing plant. You get to have the ranch tour. and You get to hang out with all of us. We all get to come together. 45 minutes from Austin. You don't even have to stay in Austin. Austin's too expensive to stay in anymore. I used to live there. I moved because basically hotel rooms, when F1 comes in town, $400, that's very fiat. I'm not going to play that game anymore. I'll go camp in my damn truck if I have to stay somewhere in Austin from here on out. Or maybe, I don't know, invite me over. I'll buy the steaks. Maybe I'll even bring them. Anyways, I'm going to go have fun this weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed Peter. He's part of the Beef Initiative now. We want more Peters. You guys know somebody? Turn them on to the Beef Initiative. There's a protocol. Let's do this together. We're open sourced, we're crowdfunded, and we're collective. We're one big collaboration. We don't ask for permission anymore. Love you guys. We'll be talking to you soon, okay? Take care. <laughs>